This is Power Lunch, exclusively on Lightning Power Play via the iHeartRadio app. Obviously, don't mind to play on the road. I think it's uh, just a fun to, you know, when you score a goal and the, the whole ring is quiet, I think it's uh, something about it. We've been great on the, on the road so far, so hopefully can do the same thing against Islanders. Yeah, Andre, I think everybody is anticipating a fun atmosphere tonight at Nassau Coliseum. Greg Winelli, Dave Mishkin with you. Steve Versnick producing. We've got Game 3 tonight starting at 8 o'clock. Our talk begins with this show till 1. And we've got at 7 o'clock Brian Burns, Kaylee Chelios, and Bobby the Chief Taylor. Uh, that'll be at 7, 7.30. I'll have the pregame, and then Dave and Phil have the game call. And then afterwards, you can talk about it with us on the last call as well. And, you know, Dave, it's interesting. We hear so much about home ice advantage. I think you and I have kind of discussed that at length in various ways. I think players, I think we all can agree, players like playing in front of people. I don't know if, if any building necessarily makes a ton of difference. But maybe if there is one, it would be... Nassau Coliseum because of the way it's built and the fans are on top of you. I remember Brian was talking about Brian Engblom on the last call the other night about how that was one of the the favorite buildings he used to like playing in because he just he felt like that arena is a bit different the way it's built than he was also playing there as the Islanders were entering and then in the middle of their dynasty. Which makes it even more fun. Which was way different than when they had the the fishermen on the front of the jersey and they were playing and when nobody was there, basically empty buildings. That was the Rick Peckham story <laughs> with Ira Kaufman. <laughs> At the other end of the spectrum, oh, Lightning man. Islanders, circa what nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. Boy, did they have a some late regular season game as bad both teams, teams are on their way to finishing in last place. Bad teams and bad uniforms, you know. During that period of time, who was was that the Ziggy Palfi era? Remember Ziggy Palfi? Yeah, I think he he got to play on on some okay teams, but for sure the the really bad Islander teams. Chara, he was there as was well. Chara? I think Chara was. Well, there when Chara too, came right? into the league, he did he did not yet have the he had not yet filled out. In terms of his body, he yeah. was like, he was like, I don't even know what the, what the term would be. Gangly. Like a really tall, skinny guy on yeah. skates who hadn't quite, hadn't quite filled out yet and hadn't become the, like a the mean, snarling defenseman <laughs> that he became. And he became that player in Ottawa. So the Islanders moved him before he even came. When we think of Zidane Chara, the Zidane Chara the Islanders yes. had didn't really Far resemble different. the Zidane Char that, yeah. that we remember and and still know in the NHL. No but doubt. the Islanders definitely had some some tough years, but they turned it around. I remember it was the year before I got to the Lightning. Yeah. They had a really good year and they made the playoffs and they lost to Toronto. Back when Toronto was winning playoff series <laughs> and they played Toronto in the first round, but I think the home team won every game. And the Islanders won games three, four, and six. It was the goaltender during at that home. Time. That wasn't. It might have been Di Pietro. I was to say, was that Di Pietro? Yeah, I think I think he okay. was on their team at that point. Right. And it was the the not the next year. The next year they they lost in the first. They lost in the first round a few years in a row. They lost in the first round the next year. I want to say to Ottawa. Mm-hmm. That was the year the Lightning made the playoffs and beat Washington 
lost the Devils in the second round, and the Devils beat Ottawa to get yeah. to the final, and, and they ended up winning the Cup that year. And then, of course, in 04, the Lightning played the Islanders right, in the right. first round. So that's three years in a row the Islanders made the playoffs, but they weren't really at that elite status yet, but they were better than they had been at the time of the the Fisherman logo. Maybe that was the Brian Berard era? Yeah, and they had... By the way, we're not Yashin. looking any of this up. They had Alexa Yashin. He was... Yashin was a really good player. Yeah, they had Michael Pekka. That's right, Michael Pekka. Sean Bates, remember him? I do, I do. Pekka ended up being a really good player, too, for Buffalo as like a kind of a grinder. Yes. Um, Really good face-off guy. So it's been a while. But we, we got sidetracked a tad, which is okay. That but is, those 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 days at the Coliseum, like the 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 Coliseum was getting back in the early two yeah. thousands when they made the playoffs. But it was the the Coliseum now is probably like it was like circa nineteen eighty, nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty two, and that's what Brian Engblom remembers. How can I make this analogy without it sounding too harsh? I, I kind of look at crowd noise and whether home ice advantage means anything, like I do with officiating. I, I don't really look at it. And maybe it will affect the game. Maybe it won't. <laughs> I don't know if I go into a series, Dave, thinking this is really going to sway the series. It does pique my interest a bit more when people have talked about how loud that building has become. And I think that's mainly because the Islanders have been competitive. So you get more people in there and they're fired up. They see that they have a legitimate shot to get to the Stanley Cup final. And I think you're going to have a boisterous crowd. Now, some of that might be the design of the Coliseum as well, the way it is is constructed, you feel like it's on top of you. So I think, regardless, players like playing in front of sold out arenas. Yes. And I think tonight, we we talk so much. I think so many people focus on how are the Islanders going to feed off that energy, Dave. But the Lightning are five and one in the postseason, and I know not each game is the same on the road. On the road. Yeah, on the road. Yeah. But I, I think it's safe to say the Lightning don't get rattled. On the road, at least this group over the last couple of years. And while the Islanders may get a lot of energy from that crowd early on, you know, they always talk about it. it's a cl- it's a cliche, but it's true. The first 10 minutes of the game, what's it going to look like? Are the Islanders going to tilt the ice? Are they going to get the lead? Are they going to get that first goal? But I, I think there's something to be said for the fact that the Lightning have played well in these type of environments. And I tell you what, Dave, you score the first goal in this game if you're Tampa Bay. It's not going to take the crowd out completely for sure, but it certainly can can shock them. And that is one of those things where you can't really quantify it, but we talked about it last game, get the lead. Get the lead on the road, and let's see how that crowd reacts, and let's see how the Islanders react with a little bit more pressure on them now playing in front of their home crowd. Well, I remember that conversation we had with Jeff Halper near the end of the regular season. I think you posed the question to Jeff about, fans in the seats during the playoffs or maybe it was even just during the regular season but I remember he answered it about like trying to trying to win a playoff game and when you're at home and the crowd is cheering you on and what he talked about is the home team can can use the energy of the crowd in a really productive way sometimes sometimes it's 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 too much energy and and you don't channel it right and maybe you get out of position, for example, because you're you're trying 
so hard and you have so much momentum at your back. But he talked about like, you know, you can gain a little bit of a boost if you're protecting a one goal lead in the third period, just clearing your defensive zone and the crowd reacts and and you you gain a little juice from that. And that's a real thing. Now, it, it is different if the home team is not protecting a one goal lead in the third. Let's say it's down by, you know, a couple of goals. I think that Boston Islander series, like the Bruins crowd was great. And the Bruins almost rallied in two of the games. In fact, in one of the games, they did rally in the third period to tie it, lost in overtime. In one of the other games, they rallied and almost tied it. And I think the crowd played a role in that. I mean, the Bruins looked like they were even more on their toes once they got the first one, right? So they were down multiple goals. They got one, and then that started the snowball rolling down the hill. So maybe it does come back to, you know, like, if you can score first or you score more recently, (laughs) maybe that's the better way of putting it. Like, if you've scored the most recent goal, the crowd is not going to generate as much buzz as if the home team has scored recently. And then the home team can can build off of that with help from the crowd. But part of that is scoring first, certainly, if you're the road team. Yeah, and that's something that clearly both teams want to try to accomplish. I also I'm, I'm curious to see tonight, Dave, as we look at Game 3, first road game for the Lightning against the Islanders in this series, Building off of game two, puck possession, turnovers in your own zone, things that at times can hurt the Lightning, but for the most part in these playoffs, they've been pretty good from that standpoint. How will they handle? Because you know the Islanders, they will come out like they've done the first two games, and Tampa Bay hasn't backed down, but maybe even more so now. Come out and be as physical as possible. And the times we've seen Tampa Bay struggle in this series has been in their own zone when they've made maybe one too many passes. And a lot of that has has been because of the the forecheck of the Islanders and what that's been able to do. If the Lightning get the puck out cleanly against this Islanders team, particularly on that forecheck, you know, you're going to see some opportunities opportunities the other way. It'll be interesting to see taking that energy that the Islanders get from their fans, how they use it when it helps them on the forecheck. But, you know, can the Lightning methodically, Dave, at times, get that puck out, don't make as many east-west passes in their own zone when you know the Islanders are going to be coming? And it's going to be physical. It's been physical the first two games. I don't know if it's if it's going to drop off considerably. Maybe the extra stuff, although we see that at the end of games. A lot of times whoever's down... They like to send a message for the next game if you believe in, in those things. But I don't know. I, I actually think this game has the potential to be a, a little bit more physical than what we've seen in the previous two. And those two two games have been pretty good from that standpoint. Yeah, like when you say if the Lightning can get pucks out, they may get some chances on counters. That's not really the Islanders game. Unlike, let's say a team the Lightning saw earlier in the playoffs, whether you're talking about Florida or Carolina. Like, Carolina's forecheck was so ferocious that if you could get it out, not only did you you make them be less effective in the offensive zone, maybe you could get opportunities on counters. The Islanders do forecheck, but remember, the Islanders' priority one is always about their structure and their team defense. And the Lightning did get some looks, I think, 
in the third period of game two on counters, but that might have been tied to the fact that they were up by a couple of goals at that point because Ruta scored early in the third. So, like, it's this is not the first home game the Islanders have played in the playoffs, and if you are the Islanders, not that we're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this from, from their perspective, but you want to use the energy from the crowd in a productive way so that if that helps you be first to pucks or win puck battles or be aggressive on the forecheck, great, but you don't want to do it at the expense of coming back defensively. So the way the Islanders would would answer or counter your point is, well, we're going to try and forecheck, but if the Lightning clear it, we're going to make sure that they don't get counters, that we are, we are covering back, we are back-checking, we are in position, so they don't get any free looks. Like what did Casey Zika say? You know, we're going to make them beat us. We're not going to beat ourselves. Yeah, right. And and part of that is making sure that if you're being aggressive in the offensive zone, you're not so aggressive that if you lose possession, you're giving up a chance the other way. Now, maybe that will happen. And that's what I was talking about, the danger of getting too amped up by the crowd. But that's not the Islanders' That's not part of their DNA. That's not how they want to play. And, you know, like I said, this is not their first home game in the playoffs. They've had they've had six previous games through the first two series they've played at home, and they've gotten used to how they want to play in front of their crowd. Yep. So presumably they know how to channel the energy from the crowd the right way for them. But that still doesn't take away from your point that whether the Lightning get a chance on, on a counter or not, they do have to execute their clears efficiently, cleanly, and consistently and not give the Islanders extended time in the Tampa Bay end. You know, I forgot to tell a story. and It's not a story. I'm just relaying what Brian had said on the last call about yeah. the defensemen getting involved offensively. And look... In many ways, that got blown out of proportion, that topic. Understanding, I think with these Zoom calls, Dave, everybody's exposed to that one singular topic. So everybody can kind of run with it. I mean, if you're in a normal setting, if you are the reporter or the broadcaster that has that question that you want answered, you could almost go to individual players in the locker room before a game or pull an assistant coach aside, maybe the head coach in a scrum, you would expose that question to everybody else. But for the most part, that would have been a unique topic that maybe wouldn't have exploded to every single media outlet because of those Zoom calls that everyone's on. So I, uh, you have to acknowledge that a bit. By the way, though, I think it may have actually helped the Lightning because it seemed like well, they put a priority, like all of this... All of this talk about the defense, you know, it seemed like the Lightning defensemen so, almost took it upon themselves to say, "All right, this ends." Tonight, I agree right? with you. So it must it must have hit a nerve or resonated because Brian was saying it might have been in in the morning skate. Hedman was just unloading one timers. Now I don't know if he typically does that, but Brian was saying, I mean, he was just blasting Kucherov passes to the point where Kucherov a couple of times just kind of <laughs> stopped and was like, whoa, I mean, this this guy's got a little extra juice. And then he said at the end of practice, I believe it was that morning, could have been the day before, I, I forget what exact date it was, 
the top four defensemen ended up doing a drill where they were trying to score on the goaltender. Now, again, I don't know if they do that every practice, so I don't I don't want to overanalyze it. My sense was the, the fact that Brian was relaying that information might have been a little bit unique to what they do at practice. But clearly, I, I think something must have resonated where, to your point, if you want to go and say it's not about scoring, it's about you know maybe being a little bit more involved in the offense. And I took the view that that's fine. But, you know, part of what makes Victor Hedman so attractive and one of the best defensemen in the league, and by the way, we have some, maybe a poll to back that up, is that he does score goals. I mean, that's what makes him dynamic in addition to racking up assists. But whichever position you come down on, there's no question in between uh, game games one and two, there there had to have been some sort of discussion about, guys, you know what, we probably didn't do enough in game one collectively, but... You know, where can we find some more offense? And they, they may have had a talk and said, yeah, on the back end, if you find a chance to, to join the rush or if you have a chance to shoot the puck, please do it. And I there was a noticeable difference. So whether it was the question, Dave, that, you know, kind of pushed them over the edge to reinforce that or if that was something they were already going to do, whatever it was, it did work. And I'm wondering, I would think... We, tr- we see not the same productivity from the back end that we saw in Game 2 the rest of these playoffs, but we may see a, a, a more concerted effort to be involved and jump in the play when you can and probably more importantly get pucks through. And whether they go in from your stick or whether it's a deflection, that is high on their list in terms of what they're trying to do offensively from the back end. Yeah, I think some of it was tied as well to the fact that the very next day Vegas got three goals from defensemen. So it was almost like a contrast of, boy, the Lightning D have a goose egg in goals. And boy, look at Vegas. They they won four to one and they got three of their goals from defense. And I think that that added to it. And look what happened last night. Alex Petrangelo, Alex Petrangelo scored both the goals for the Golden Knights you might say, great, they got production from their D, but they lost three to two. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, it's it's about how many are you scoring and how many are you keeping out. And wherever you get the ones that you're putting in, you'll take them, right? As long as it's at least one more than the other side. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Vegas, so what have they scored now? Six goals in the series, five have come from defense. Incredible, huh? But the two that they scored last night, that was not enough. So whether it came from the defense or or Pacioretty scored or Stone scored or Marcheseau scored or whoever, they didn't score enough. And I think that's that's kind of what what I kept circling back to. Like they play as a unit of five. So the question should really be less about does the defense have have a number other than zero next to all of the guys who are playing and more about what is their role in helping generate offense? Yes. And I think that they could have done more after game one and they did in game two and they just happened to get rewarded with two goals. I think Dan Rosen made the point yesterday, you know, like if Ruda's shot is tipped, which it was not really a shot that could have been tipped because the only guys between Ruda and Varlamov were three Islanders. But if a Lightning player had been there and tipped it in, 
would it have mattered that Ruta didn't get credit for the goal? N- not really, you know, because he took the shot that led to the goal. For sure. No doubt. And look, if if you're a team that's built on your back end scoring the majority of your goals, that'll be the first team in NHL history that that happens, no doubt. I, I think your forwards need to lead the way. There's there's no question. Yeah. Um, if you have some guys back there who can fill the net and the Lightning have a couple, you want to see them do it. But if they can generate some more offense, whether it's a pass or whether it's a shot through and a deflection, you want to see that as well. I think we all can agree great game two was much better from that standpoint than game one. And we'll see if that can continue today against the Islanders. This is Power Lunch, exclusively on Lightning Power Play on the iHeartRadio app. All right, all right. Thanks for hanging with us. We always appreciate it. Sometimes you run into a little technical difficulties. I blame our next guest, Dave. And that would be our good friend Eric Erlinson from LightningInsider.com. He's always getting into trouble. He's getting us into trouble. He's actually in New York with our good friend Jay Retcher as they're covering games three and four tonight. That's going to be a lot of fun. And, E, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying Shea Retcher here in uh, Central Iceland, New York, as we prepare for <laughs> Very the nice. game tonight. Yeah, it's uh, it's awesome. The weather's great. Uh, should be a great atmosphere for uh, inside and outside for this game tonight. What do you remember about the Nassau Coliseum in, and I'll refer to the 04 playoffs, because that was the only time the Lightning have played a road playoff game against the Islanders in that building. But I know that they've yeah. drawn comparisons to the, the raucous nature of the Coliseum when the Islanders are winning Stanley Cups in the early 80s. What do you remember about how big of a factor the the crowd was expected to be? The Lightning won both those games via shutout, so the crowd was kept quiet. But like the anticipation of what the crowd was going to be like back in 04, do you remember? Yeah, I don't remember the talk of the crowd being as it is right now. Now, for good reasons. I mean, they've been without crowds for a year, and it's the last year at Nassau. Uh, so that some of those kind of come into play. So, you know, the the, the, the crowd is going to be, I think, louder than anything we even remember being there before. But, I, you know, I don't remember the crowd being much of a factor during those games in 04. Of course, there were only the two of them. Um, and they were both shut out, so the, the fans never really had a chance to get into the game very much at all. Uh, but I am looking forward to tonight. I, you know, from watching it on TV and uh, everything else, uh, it should be a fun, fun atmosphere. And I'll certainly be posting some videos on my Twitter page from it. E, there's probably no other team left in this series, but even more so when the playoffs began, where scoring the first goal mattered more than scoring against the Islanders. They're just a, a different team when they have the lead, and I've got to think that was a pretty big deal in Game 2. Do you feel like that's going to be a, a big deal, especially on the road? Whoever scores first, it's it's you know can sway things. But certainly, if it happens against the Islanders, do you feel like that's a bigger deal? I do. I agree with that. I think with the way the Islanders can lock it down and how much they like to play structured, very Columbus-esque in the way that they like to protect the middle area in their own zone. And they can really kind of go into that that mode and, and force the turnovers that we saw in game one from Tampa Bay and take away some areas that the Lightning think were there. Um, you know, they seem to figure it out a little bit better in game two. But again, if, if you're having to chase against the Islanders, it's it's a task that's difficult. I, 
I think I even use the analogy. It's, it's, you know, if you're playing chase against New York, you're trying to, you know, pay, play tag with a cheetah in the Savannah. You're just not going to catch him. Um, Cause it's that hard to, to do when you're behind against New York. So I think the first goal, it's always important, especially in the playoffs. You never want to have to play from behind, but when you're playing defensively sound structured teams like New York, I think it takes on just a little bit more importance. We had Dan Rosen on with us yesterday, and Greg, I'm stealing Greg's question to Dan because I'm curious to get your response, but but he asked, like, contrasting the challenge for both these teams, and he was wondering of Dan, is it harder for the Lightning to deal with the Islanders when they are really dialed in and playing with their structure, or harder for the Islanders to face the Lightning when the Lightning are are rolling and, and playing on their toes with – a structured game, but also a high speed game. What do you think? Like, which is the bigger challenge for either of these teams? To me, I, I think it's, it's the, the Islanders having to deal with Tampa Bay when they're at their best because the game is fast. The pace is fast. The decisions have to be made quick. You know, you, you, when you do that, as we saw somewhat in game two, you pull the Islanders out of what they want to be a little bit because of how fast and how chaotic and a chaos. I don't mean, you know, unstructured, but it can get, to that situation where the Islanders have to sort things out. You know, they like to play in that sound, solid structure that if you if you move the puck fast, if you move it in areas to where they have to react to it quicker and then you can go back the other way, that's how you pull them out of it. I think that's more difficult to deal with if you're the opposing team than maybe trying to, you know, find a crack in the armor. I think it's a little bit easier. And it's not easy, but it's a little bit easier to find a crack in that armor uh, if you're facing an Islanders team that is at their best when they're playing structurally, um, it just takes patience. Uh, sometimes it takes patience upon patience uh, to, to be able to do it. But I think you can deal with that maybe a little bit more than if a team's coming at you just wave after wave with pace. Dare I say that was a great question? E, what do you think? <laughs> and Dave, Dan gave the same response, too. <laughs> He, oh, he, he agreed. Did. He did. Well, I guess you agree with him, but not that yeah. you knew what his response was. He He felt that <laughs> Dealing with speed as a structured team is harder than dealing with structure when that structure yeah. is is really rock solid. I usually black out when the the person I'm interviewing says "great question," and then <laughs> I don't remember that he actually I don't said that. But yeah, no, I, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't. But I, you know, I digress. I will not give you the same compliment. Greg. Oh, I know you won't. <laughs> Eric Erlinson <laughs> from LightningInsider.com joins us here on Power Lunch. Now, I will say this, you asked a great question when it came to defensemen and getting involved and scoring, and that obviously was a big deal in Game 2. Do you think that was a coincidence, or do you think there was a a bigger push from the staff and from the players to get their defensemen more involved? And do you think that's going to have to continue if the Lightning want to advance to the Stanley Cup Final? Well, if anybody wants to give me credit for the Lightning scoring two goals in the defense in game two, I will certainly take it. But, um, I mean, look, the D had been close, right? I mean, Jan Ruta, how many posts did Ruta hit in the Carolina series? You know, so, uh, you know, and Hedman had all the assists. So it's not like the defense hasn't been making an impact offensively. The, the great pass that Ryan McDonough made to spring Braden Point for the game winner late in game one against Florida. You know, so their D has been involved and active. I I think there is a balance, though, that you have to you, – you don't want to push it too much, right? Like you don't want to be, as uh, Craig Ramsey used to say, the, oh, you know what zone for defense if you get down too deep and you're like, oh, no, I'm too deep. You know, you don't want to get into that situation. So they, they've kind of maintained that balance a little bit. Uh, but the production has been there. I think you want definitely want to have your D 
involved in the scoring. I mean, look at what the difference it's made for Vegas. And, you know, they get two more goals last night from Alex Bertangelo. They had three goals from their D in game one against Montreal. It makes a difference, and it makes it harder for teams to defend you if the defense are going to jump into play a little bit more. So you, you, you create, um, as I think Steve Cooley has said it yesterday, four-on-threes are the new three-on-twos in the league, right, because you get that fourth defenseman kind of join, joining the rush a little bit. Um, so you want your D active, you want them involved, you want them to be a part of the offense. It's all, you know, the cliche now, the five-man unit. Um, but you want you want the D producing because it just gives the other team something different to think about. We actually asked Brian Engblom this question before the series began about Luke Shen, if he expected that Luke Shen would come in based on the opponent, the tough, rugged Islanders, and based on the fact that Shen had a really good series against the Islanders in the bubble last year. And and Brian felt that we would see Luke Shen. Do you think that 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 still is a likely possibility as we move forward in the series? Or have the Lightning been able to to manage what the Islanders do with with the current defensemen that they've used? Understanding they had one really good game and, and then game one was not to their liking, but as far as the lineup configuration. You know, I guess it depends on what we see tonight. I think that might determine it uh, because we did see, you know, some of the post whistle stuff crop up after, you know, whistles after game in, in game two there, you know, you saw the fight between Maroon and, um, you know, Matt Martin and, you know, Matt Martin and, and Shen were the two that went at it last year. And, you know, so if, if some of that tone continues to step up, step, uh, stand up and, or come up within games, I think there's that possibility, but, you know, with the way they're rolling on their D right now, I mean, the ice time has been pretty good. You know, normally we'll, we're seeing McDonough and Hedman around 25, 27 minutes a night. They, you know, they've been pretty good in, in terms of spreading it out, you know, in the 21 to 23-minute range for the most part here uh, in the early parts of this series. So I'm comfortable with the way things are rolling right now with their D. I don't know if you need to have Luke Shannon for the physical aspect of it, but we might get a little bit more of a clear answer whether that's needed with tonight's game because, you know, Barry Trotz, I think, has his team a little fired up and basically accusing the Lightning of taking extra liberties in these scrums because he knows that his team won't respond because they don't want to get called for a penalty and put Tampa Bay on the power play. So uh, we'll see if that uh, ramp ramps up a little bit further tonight. Eric Erlinson from LightningInsider.com joins us here on Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. Looking beyond the playoffs for a second, but it it's because of how well he's played in these playoffs. Barkley Goodrow, they're not going to be able to keep everybody E, and you understand that the Lightning are up against the cap. But when you watch Goodrow's play, is he the one guy you try out of all the ones who may be unrestricted or you can't keep on this team that you do try and re-sign? Understanding his role as a bottom six, but boy, he does give this team such a, a different identity when he's healthy and playing, doesn't he? He does. We saw it last year when he joined the team. You know, you think back to that game in Boston right before we hit the pandemic pause, uh, you know, all the dust ups that went on in that game, that game. And he was right in the middle of all of it. You know, he was basically introducing himself to his new team, as well as, you know, a team you figured they were going to end up meeting at some point in the postseason on top of that. Uh, he does. You know, he can he can go in and win faceoffs. He's a fantastic penalty killer you know he plays a physical game he can drop the gloves he has a lot of those intangible elements that you love in players and you know one of the comments from Julian Breezeblaw when they acquired him from San Jose is that you know he's overvalued his contract he's over you know performed his contract value uh did did that hurt Breezeblaw in what potential negotiations might be coming up I guess we're going to see 
but he's the guy, you know, I, I don't think they're going to be able to afford a Blake Coleman and uh, what he can do. And, you know, he's, he's a guy that can perform in a top six on other teams and probably put up 20 goals as he did in New Jersey. Uh, David Savard is going to be too costly to retain as well. So if you're looking at the, one of those three guys, you'd love to try and find a way to bring Barclay Goodrow back. But again, with the cap issues that they have, I mean, they're already over the cap with, with the money that they have allotted to next season. Uh, you know, and it's, you have an off season and you have an expansion draft that's going to take care of, you know, at least one player, you know, depending on who it is, but you're going to lose a player of some quality to Seattle. Uh, so maybe that opens up a door and maybe you could get Goodrow to come in on, on a pretty good team friendly deal on one or two years. I imagine that this will be a topic that will help fill the days for our show after the lightning season is over right. before the expansion draft. But talking about the protected list and Seattle, and I'm bringing this up because there was a story that, that broke today. It might have been Elliot Friedman who had it. I don't know if you saw it, Eric, but, but he said that there is some early, quote-unquote, sticker shock from team executives in hearing what Ron Francis is asking for in terms of assets in exchange for leaving certain players alone. So in other words, you can protect who you're going to protect on your list, but maybe there's a player that you can't put on the list, but you don't want Seattle to take that player, so you work a side deal. And that's what Vegas did really well back in 2017 with a number of teams, including the Lightning. What is the likelihood both around the league that we're going to see that based on on how expensive it's going to be and then specifically with the lightning do you do you have a sense that the lightning are just going to submit their list understanding they're only going to lose one player you're not going to lose four players or do you think they may say you know what there's really a player that we can't include on the list and we're going to have to make a side deal here with seattle yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what Julian and the staff do, Matthew Darsh and uh, everybody else with, with the front office for Tampa Bay. Um, I, I just get the sense that you know you're going to lose a quality player. Why not just keep the assets you have knowing you're only going to lose one rather than maybe giving up two or three to protect one, you know, one or two, depending on what you do. Um, yeah, And I'm not surprised that uh, the price is high. For, for teams asking Ron Francis if he wants to make some side deals because that's how Vegas turned themselves into an instant success, right? They they were able to draft some good quality players off the teams and they were able to utilize that and flip to assets. But just like he did um, with Tampa Bay and the Lightning giving up, what, a second-round draft pick and the rice and Nikita Gusev, you know, for them to take Jason Garrett, um, Garrison, who was a, you know, a $5 million player at the time. You know, if, if, you're, if you definitely want to have Seattle shed, take some salary off your hands, maybe that's the route you go. Uh, but I know me and Greg have had this conversation. I just let Seattle take whoever they're going to take and, and then deal with the after effects after that. Because as you said, it's just going to be one player. You're not losing multiple assets here. Uh, you're just going to lose a one, one, one player in this deal. And then, then from there, then you can start to put your summer together and what you're going to be able to do to get yourself cap compliant for next year and beyond. Because here's the other thing, too, that we haven't even talked about yet. Next year is Braden Point's last year of his contract. He's going to be up for a new deal after next year. And that's going to be a, a big payday for him. And it's already going to be, I, I know his cap hits six something, but his, his actual salary is around 9.5, which is what his new cap is going to have to come in at as a restricted free agent. That's what you think he'll make? You think Brandon Yeah, well, it, nine the million? last year of his deal, the way it's structured in, in terms of actual dollars, he's around gotcha. nine, $9 million. So gotcha. to, in order to retain his rights, you have to come in at least that qualifying offer to retain his rights. So that, that'll be the minimum what he makes out of his new contract. 
Would you make him the highest paid forward on this team? I'd put him in line with Kucherov. Kuch is what, nine and a half? Nine point five. I'd put him yeah. in that in that area. Because and plus the two of them have such great chemistry. You know, if they want to continue to play together, you're gonna to have to make it work structurally from a financial standpoint. Where where do those two rank? Again, this is this is the emotions are pretty fresh because we're talking about guys that have performed recently. But when you talk about duos in the NHL, especially over the last 15, 20 years, I mean, you, you can talk about Lemieux, Yager when they were on the line. I mean, heck, you could go Lemieux, Yager, Francis when they were an actual line and they were hitting 100 points. There's been a number of cases over the, the course of the NHL where you've seen a couple of guys have tremendous chemistry but where does where does points in Kucherov rank for you when it comes to duos in today's NHL all you gotta do is look at the numbers I mean they're up there with some of the greatest duos in playoff history you know Taze and Kane when they were at the top of their game and you know putting up all kinds of points in the postseason on those three cup runs that the Blackhawks had and um you know, it just it's just it's sick to think of the numbers, and I mean sick in a good way, of what Kucherov is putting up. I mean, he, you know, what, 44 assists now combined in the past two years. Uh, it's the, what, fourth or fifth most in NHL history, and he's got at least three more games to go uh, in this series to add to that. Um, I mean, they're just ridiculous numbers. Braden Point, just he's a goal per game play. I mean, his numbers in the postseason are just it's a, it's unbelievable. Incredible. Yeah. And what he can do when the playoffs are up and you, you want those kind of players. And we, we talk about Alex Kalorn as a playoff performer, but we don't talk about Braden point because Braden point puts up great numbers in the regular season. And then he's even better in the postseason. It's, it's incredible how those two have done. Uh, so I, you know, I, I, in the book that I have in lightning strikes, I did a story on those two and where they stack up uh, in terms of some of the great duos that have been up there. And, you know, and, and looking at the numbers just in last year's postseason, they were up there pretty good. Um, it's certainly in recent history and recent memory of, of two guys performing in the postseason. Uh, historically, I didn't go that deep into it, uh, but now you look at what they're doing again this year. And what was the number? Uh, Nikita Kucherov has assisted on like 80% of Braden Point's goal, goals in the postseason, and the only duo higher are the Sedin twins. It's just, you know, yeah, I think you it was... start talking about that kind. I think it was 62.5%, and the only reason why I know that is because I retweeted that out, and I used that for my broadcast, yeah. so that was the only reason why. But regardless, Kucherov, and Dave, I'll let, I'll let you chime in here with your next question. Kucherov is going to go down. The way he gets points, I mean, he, he gets points just rolling out of bed. I, I think I've made that yeah. statement to you guys before. He's going to go down as maybe the best offensive player in Lightning history. I didn't say yes. best, but offensive. I mean, his numbers, what he's yeah. doing right now, especially in the playoffs, are staggering. Staggering. Yeah, and it's hard to believe at one point people didn't think he showed up in the playoffs. <laughs> I think that that was a really small, isolated window, though, Eric. Absolutely. Going back to the Washington series, particularly the end of the Washington series, into the Columbus series, which was a span, if we're going to limit it to game six and seven of the Washington series, because the Lightning's power play was good in that Washington series, and Kucherov was a part of that up until the last two games. And then the four games against Columbus, in which he only played three, we're talking about yeah. five games, a five-game span. Yeah. Because before that, the 2016 run, Kucherov was dominant. Yep. I mean, he had a dominant playoff, and, and 
He had one of his best series ever, statistically, in the first round of the 2018 playoffs against New Jersey. Yep. What did he have, 10 points yeah. in, in the yeah. five games in that series? So, to me, that, that was one of those narratives that took off and just, like, spun out of control when, when it didn't really factor in the whole picture. Well, he had back-to-back 10 performances in 15 and 16. Like, he was one of the few yeah. players who have done that in back-to-back playoffs. But it, it's, it's what's the phrase, recency bias? So that, I think that kind of came into play, to your point. Right. The, the thing I want to ask you about Kucherov, and I don't have the numbers in front of me here, but he's got 17 assists in the playoffs this year, which, I mean, that's, that's a postseason total for some players in a like career year where they are they're having their best ever playoff he's got that in assists alone how many of those assists do you think have been primary assists i mean i would say at least 12 or 13 and and the only reason i'm bringing that up like sometimes the secondary assist is a really important part of the goal being scored but how many times is it kucherov making a play to get the puck to somebody who shoots it in the net yeah. Like it's not just that he's getting assists. He's making the key pass often that's resulting in a goal being scored. That's yeah, not really I, a question, I, I but I it's more of an observation. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you have any, you have anything to add to that. Uh, you're right. I you know the primary assists are so much more important in the way that he sets them up. I mean, you know, a primary assist can be a defenseman giving a puck to a guy in the defensive zone. He goes all the way down the ice and scores. That can be a primary assist. But it's the type of primary assist that he's doing. You know, just think back to game one against Florida and his after scoring two goals, the, the set up to Braden Point. And, you know, yeah. we had another one of those type of plays in the Carolina series where Point cuts in underneath and, you know, Kucherov puts it right on his stick. And, you know, the two assists, uh, the two five-on-five assists the other night, those are both just eye-popping uh, assists. Uh, so it, it's the manner in which he's getting those primary assists that I think people need to understand. And look, it, it's it's great to see that he's getting the recognition for it now because we certainly talk about it a lot here in this market because of the team that we cover. You know, be hearing Kevin Weeks talk about how you know it's good to see you know how how dominant he has been and how special of a player he is. You know, because he's he's not in a you know he's not Crosby, he's not McDavid, he's not Matthews, he's he's not talked about in that light when he absolutely should be because of his performances, you know, going back to the MVP season and the the last two playoffs this year and everything else, he's a special player guys. And to be able to watch him mature from a guy when he came up his rookie year was getting breakaway after breakaway after breakaway. And then ends up as a healthy scratch. And then only plays in two of the four games against Montreal and then comes back the next year. And you can start to see glimpses and signs so to see him grow and mature from that rookie season in 14 to the dominant force he is right now and understand the work he put in to, to, to get to this level, uh, it's a phenomenal story and he's a phenomenal player. Which makes it even more ridiculous when you look at this NHLPA player pool. Did you have a, did you check this out, E? I have looked so at it, yeah. So it's nearly 500 NHL players surveyed on 14 hockey-related questions. All right. At least this first page that I'm looking at, Nikita Kucherov is not in any of these. Now, is this for this season alone, though? Were the players limited to vote? Yeah. Which is a weird uh, year because, you know, every play. player only saw a quarter of the league. Yeah, Which is right. And you know what? That makes sense. But still, 
I mean, you can look at this and say, you know, best stick handler. How about best passer? You know, Nicholas Backstrom, the best passer, gets 20%. How about the one? Who's the guy you, you'd go to? Who's the one player you'd want on your team if you need to win one game? Connor McDavid? <laughs> I mean, what what's Connor McDavid? I wonder what, if that, that poll was won? taken before the playoffs began. It might have. I'm, I'm uh, sure but still, But still, what has he won? I mean, I like Connor McDavid. He's a great player. But what... What what are we doing here? What are we talking about? You know, Hedman, I think, had best defenseman, Vassie, best goaltender. Okay, that's fine. I'd love to see maybe that poll being taken after the playoffs or, you know, look, I understand Kucherov hasn't been playing the regular season, but it's not like you don't know what his skill sets are based off of what he did last year. And Braden. But Braden. As, as you're evaluating it as, as a player, you're probably thinking of players who played this year, so that well, could explain why the absence there. Yeah, Braden Point, uh, I mean, again, come on. I don't know if it's because of the market that we're in uh, and the recognition isn't there, but um, that's where these type of performances on the stage they're on now, Jeez. you know, others start to see it. Well, it didn't affect Hedman and Vasilevsky. And the Hedman choice was interesting because by any objective standard, you know, Hedman did not have his best regular season, at least the second half. I think that's yeah. a, a fairly accepted view even though nobody asked Victor that, but we'll find out after the playoffs and, you know, exactly what he has been dealing with. But he won the best defenseman going away. So if it is only this year, he still did very, very well in terms of the voting. So there was no location bias affecting him yeah. or Vasilevsky. Well, and those are, yeah, those, those are obvious are always choices. interesting. All right, so what happens tonight, E? I mean, I, I don't want predictions necessarily who's going to win or lose but uh, give us your sense of the start to this game and what you think the islanders especially are going to try and do early on with the crowd behind them i think they're going to try and feed off that for the you know the, the proverbial survive the 10 minute surge from the home team that's coming in this situation you know they're the team that lost the most recent game so they've got the quote-unquote more urgency in their game you know interesting that the Islanders split each of the first two rounds against Pittsburgh and Boston came home for game three and lost game three in each of those series. Um, but I expect from Tampa Bay's perspective, we're going to see more of what we saw in game two. That's the style they know they want to play. And, you know, and, and then if you want to read into Barry Trotz's comments, I mean, those are very un Barry Trotz like comments to come out and say that, you know, the other team's not playing with integrity. Uh, he's not usually that type of a coach. So, uh, if you want to read into that and say that, you know, they've got the Islanders a little worried or a little concerned or, you know, whatever you want to say, <laughs> that maybe they're in their head a little bit. It just seems odd that Trotz would come out and do that. This uh, is so a guy. If, if that's the case, if you're the Lightning, you're going to continue that post-whistle stuff, right? You're going to try and get under their skin a little bit more. Uh, so I would expect to see a little bit more of that from Tampa Bay, more physical, uh, the battle level high, uh, as high as it was in game two. Barry what Trotz. examples did he cite? I'm Barry a little confused Trotz. by that comment because after the game – it looked like the Islanders were certainly the ones who were initiating oh, a yeah. lot of that activity. Well, that just was, ask Anthony that was Sorelli. Payback, right? um, I, I think he was just talking about in those scrums that the Lightning were kind of giving some extra shots to try and bait the Islanders into taking a penalty. Uh, you know, it looked like it was being given both ways uh, in, in those areas. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's his backhanded way of, of trying to get the uh, uh, t uh, officials' attention. I don't know. But, again, it's – 
you don't Barry Trotz is not a coach to talk about other teams in that manner. He's just he's just so professional in his demeanor and everything he does and in, in, in his his comments. But uh, so that was very interesting to hear him say that yesterday. This is a guy who's coached Matt Martin and Tom Wilson. So, you know, let's excuse me if you want to start talking about integrity and, and what these guys do during the scrum. My goodness. I, I, you know, look, Barry Trotz is who he is. He's gotten a lot of credit for turning the Islanders around for sure. But I'll point this out. And, um, you know, it makes some people a little uncomfortable. Um, for all of his wins, and we talk about the system and the X's and O's, he's won a cup. But he won a cup, too, with the Washington Capitals, who also had elite skill in addition to structure. And yep. uh, had a lot of disappointments, too, with teams that didn't have it. I'm not saying he can't. But, you know, Barry Trotz, I think, understands the way the Lightning played in Game 2. I think we answered our question when we were talking about which... Hey, hey, I'm talking here! Come on! <laughs> what the hell? Oh, I'm going off. <laughs> hey, is that Barry Trotz? Is that Barry Trotz? You know I what, guys? I heard you, Jay, uh, Greg. Let I me just say this. We, we dropped earlier today because of Barry Trotz. I'm just going to use that excuse on him. Did he doesn't know... Like... That in Come addition on. to his busy day of preparing his team, morning skate, talking to the media, Jeez. game planning for game three, Barry Trotz takes an hour out of you know each what? day to listen to Power Lunch. <laughs> you know, that was probably, you know, in, in all fairness, our commentary so much. In all fairness, that was probably Jay Retcher just trying to give it to Eric and uh, let him do that thing. No, but in all, in all seriousness, I do think Trotz understands if the Lightning play the way they did in game two. I think not that he's totally concerned, but I think there are more problems for the Islanders than than maybe some people yeah. are, want to give credit. We talked about five on five scoring, and the Lightning got three five on five goals. Yeah, so he can go honk himself there and <laughs> go that way, and we'll go kind of play it out. Well, you have fun. He was trying to get the linesman's attention that the Lightning had seven players on the ice. That's what. Yeah, that's what. It <laughs> that's and that's uh, so you know he's like I got my car alarm ready. <laughs> <laughs> hey, cop a number of lightning players that on the ice. Tremendous. That would be tremendous. What time are you getting over to the arena tonight? Um, get there, take it well, all Jay's in? on the air, I think, until about 6. So we'll leave uh, straight from here and hopefully be the arena by 6.30, 6.45. I was going to say, how long is the uh, the ride in? 25, 30 minutes? With, with traffic, it's about 30 guys? minutes or so. With traffic, about an hour and a half? Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's that's with Travis. And he, he's about 15 miles yeah. away, so that's why it's uh, 30 to okay. 35 minutes. Well, I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to partake in any of the pregame dining at Amelie Arena, which is makeshift for sure. It's it's not quite what it normally is. But in speaking with Chris King before game two, and he was partaking of the meal, he said, yeah, this is this is a cut above what we have right now at the Nassau Coliseum. Uh -oh. Not that he's complaining. He's just like, uh -oh. you know, they have a lot of they have a lot of the protocols in place. So I guess based on what I heard from him, I would make sure that you're well fed before you get to the arena. Yes, so I, I, I saw the uh, uh, snack boxes, not meal boxes, snack boxes. So I'm, I'm well prepared for that. So pack your sandwich and put it in your bag. <laughs> and then you can eat it at the arena. E. I think that's the only way to do it. Or, you know, just get a bagel at one of the stands on the corners. Well, there you go. I'm just, you know, I think that might actually work out pretty well. Good stuff all the way around. All right, buddy. Well, uh, enjoy the next couple of days covering the series. And, um, you know, don't be around Jay too much because sometimes his his uh, negativity can rub off on you. But that's okay. You'll, you'll power through. And uh, go subscribe at lightninginsider.com. And uh, read E's work after each and every game. Thank you, buddy. We appreciate it.
Thanks, boys. See you in a couple days. Thanks, Eric. Got it. Safe travels back, too. If we don't talk to you before, Eric Garlinson from lightninginsider.com. And that'll be fun. You are too funny with Barry Trotz (laughs) setting up the car alarm because he didn't like what you were (laughs) saying. It couldn't have happened at a perfect time. I'm I'm sitting oh, here kind of ripping him a little bit, and all of a sudden, it's a it's a horn. I mean, you can't tell me that wasn't coincidence, Dave. I think Barry Trotz listens to Power you Lunch. Yeah, the power, power play. the power of Power Lunch. We really have no idea. Let me ask you this before we sign off. In all honesty, how often do you think coaches or general managers read the newspapers? or listen to talk shows specifically about their team? Do you think more than we think? Uh, I think they're aware of what's going on. Probably more printed stuff. I know that teams often compile printed material for management to read, and maybe the coaches read it too. I don't know how much time they have to spend listening to sports talk. Right. No offense to us. No. But... Well, who knows? But uh, we, we, you know, Barry, we've we've given his praises a lot on this show. He is and, a great uh, coach. He is. He is a There's great no coach. Question. And look, he had a right to be upset about the seven players on the ice. If 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 that had happened against the Lightning, John Cooper would be would be yelling much the same way. Yeah. And and getting that. upset much the same way. I had not heard about or seen his quotes about the post whistle stuff. I didn't see that either. But that I I kind of feel that at least from what I have seen, it's been fairly even. Like, the Lightning and Islanders both have given as good as they've gotten. I think Coleman, was it Coleman who took a a glove to the face, a punch to the face from Pellick? Maybe it was Yanni Gord. I remember that happened in in one of the first couple of games. It might have been game two. No, I think for the most part it's been... The one that a lot of people are talking about is the Sorelli play at the end of game two, but Brian brought up a good point. He said... If you watch that, um, who was he tangled up with? Travis Zajac. Uh, Zajac kind of had his hand behind Sorelli's head. So when he fell on the ice, he protected him. Yeah. So, I, you know, those but are kind of those little he's things. Still- body slam yeah he did i mean look i i I thought it was you know kind of cheap and dangerous which you know sorelli got up and was a little shaken up but brian made the point you could tell he really protected his head from hitting the ice yeah and zajac i I think we brought he's not a dirty yesterday zajac is not that sort of player for sure the other part too the islanders had the extra skater on the ice because the goalies usually don't get involved so that was a six on five situation Mm -hmm. where the islanders had the extra player but Look, of all of the penalties that we have seen called, I'm trying to remember. I think there has only been one penalty called that has come, not even post-whistle, but along the lines. Now, it was post-whistle because it was in game one. Barkley Goodrow got called for that one where he basically grabbed the jersey of Palmieri and kind of shoved the jersey, and the second time he did it, his glove came up and you know made contact with, with Palmieri's face or the side of his helmet but it was kind of a nothing play mm-hmm. and Goodrow was surprised that that was what was called and that's been the only one that we've seen so maybe we'll start to see more but we've maybe. talked about this Greg like the officials have to figure out what they're going to do early in games when they start seeing a lot of these post whistle scrums are they just going to let it go are they going to call one one penalty on each side are they going to try and figure out 
who is stirring the pot more and give that player and that team an extra penalty. And by the way, Kelly Sutherland is working the game again tonight with Eric Furlat. I think they were the two officials in game one. But it's not an easy job to figure out how you're going to navigate through this. And maybe we won't see many of the post-whistle scrums tonight. But I'm, I'm curious, like, is Barry Trotz saying that? Like, I think he's saying it because he certainly he, he believes it, but also he is trying to convey a message. So what is the message? Is the message that he wants his guys to be able to kind of engage in the scrum without being called for a penalty and putting them on the penalty kill? Does he want the lightning to be called for the penalty? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that there's probably something more at play here that he's trying to convey his feelings to the official. You know, the, the crowd was all over Bruce Cassidy for the New York Saints comment that he made after game five. But if you look at power play opportunities in game six, I believe the chances were three to one for the Bruins. Yeah. So up until game two of this series, the Islanders had not been shorthanded more than three times in any game. And they'd only been shorthanded three times before game six against the Bruins twice. So Cassidy makes that comment and lo and behold, the Bruins get three power play chances and they popped in two goals. Didn't help them win the game, but that's why coaches do what they do. Because, I mean, sometimes sending these these messages through their press conferences can have an effect in the next game. It can. We'll see if it has an effect tonight. 8 o'clock, puck drops. Dave and Phil have the call. Our coverage on Lightning Power Play will begin at 7 o'clock with the pregame skate show. Brian Burns, Kaylee Chelios, and Bobby the Chief Taylor. I'll have the network pregame at 7.30. We'll have the last call after the game as well so we've got you covered and then dave and i'll break it all down again tomorrow from noon to one thanks partner we'll talk to you in a few hours talk to you in a few that's dave michigan thanks to steve versnick thanks Derek erlinson i'm greg Lanella. you've been listening to power lunch on letting power play